So what else have we learned from the modeling numbers released today? I am pleased to welcome Caroline Collien, Collien, the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health. Caroline is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, what can we take from these numbers when, I mean, not a huge surprise, I think, when looking at some of the slides in that it's uh, the more elderly population that's hardest hit by this. But what else kind of sticks out for you and what we're learning today? So I think we, you know, we've learned that uh, Canada is pretty variable with different uh, regions having pretty different epidemics. Uh, we have learned that there still is COVID-19. The fact that we're sick of this doesn't actually mean it's over. Uh, it's still here. We've done a good job across Canada, I think, uh, overall in de- declining numbers. But uh, we still do have cases. And as you said, particularly in Ontario and Quebec. And I think it means we have to be really, really cautious when we think about reopening. And we probably have to develop faster and really, really nimble ways to try to monitor uh, and ensure that as we reopen, we don't just pave the way for a big resurgence. Uh, One of the numbers released this morning as well is Canada's effective reproductive value and that it's trending close to one. What does that actually mean? Yeah, this number is really, um, you know, it's it's a good way to try to capture something about, you know, if you picked a random case, are they likely to infect more than one other person or less than one? And if it's less than one, then it's going to keep going down, right? Um, And if it's more than one, it's going to rise. But estimating that number is actually really hard because it'll potentially change if there's a burst, you know, an outbreak that's very localized and doesn't mean that on average doesn't maybe doesn't mean anything about community transmission. That also depends on testing and and reporting rates and on the delays. So, So we don't really have a number for today. We have kind of a ballpark of are we declining or growing based on data in the past, let's say, months. Right, because that would it would change substantially, wouldn't it? Because one of the other slides, when it takes a look at the settings, and as we know, long-term care facilities and seniors' homes have been very hard hit, but it would make sense that in that setting, we would see why the, the reproductive number would be bigger than, say, in an open space. Yeah, absolutely. It, it would differ hugely by setting, by workplace, and tragically, we've seen the the outbreaks in long-term care and also in uh, meatpacking and certain workplace settings. And I think, you know, we saw those in a context where none of the rest of us were, were, you know, maybe very few of the rest of us were out and about all that much. So those places of, of higher transmission will probably change as we start to reopen. And that's, I think, one thing we really have to look out for. Uh, but yeah, any of these RRT or R effective numbers will be potentially high in places where there's a much higher risk than in the general population. It's probably really low if you're out hiking by yourself, you know, you're not going <laughs> to infect so. anybody. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. Um, yeah, exactly. It shows us that on the one hand, too, that while older Canadians are at greater risk of the, these severe outcomes, that the growth of this uh, this virus has slowed across all age groups. So can we take from that that, that the measures we're taking are working? Yeah, I think broadly we can. And I think, you know, they are working and, and it's great. I think the question is what's going to happen when we reduce those measures. Um, I think the other uh, the other point is the measures we're taking are a combination of lots of things. So I think we're all engaged in the kind of broader distancing. Bars and nightclubs are closed. We haven't been going uh, to work in person. But then there's also a, a really strong public health component around finding cases, around outbreak control in long-term care, 
uh, and those kinds of aspects, too. So it's really a combination of all of those things put together. And does a modeling like this, the numbers and what we're seeing, does it bring factor in the, the asymptomatic cases? Um, well, I don't. So yes and no. Um, I think we can't really directly measure the asymptomatic cases, so they're not really in the case reports. Uh, some of the modeling here was really just conceptual, and you can see that at one of the slides, the case numbers actually go below the line, kind of looks like <laughs> negative case numbers. And those are just sort of illustrative, and I think those would kind of cover a huge range, um, and that would encompass a range of possibilities for asymptomatics. Um, and I think the... So, so I mean, yes and no, it doesn't really kind of, kind of count how many asymptomatic cases there are, but I think the kind of broad transmission and the fact that we've... Um, been able to reduce cases means, you know, what we're doing is affecting broader transmission. Uh, I do think we have good evidence that we shouldn't only intervene um, for symptomatic cases because we know this can spread without symptoms. So that's behind some of the broad measures we have, the working from home and the distancing. Right. And and even then, it's not as though we've had 100% buy-in. I think we like to pat ourselves on the backs and say, yes, we did a good job and we followed the rules. And and for the most part, that's probably true. But you're never going to get 100% buy-in. So I think that probably gives people some reassurances that even with some rule breakers, we were still able to get to this point. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in the modeling work we've done here in BC, we have kind of a fraction of the population that's not willing or able to engage in distancing and they kind of do their normal thing. And some of that is is not so much that they don't want to, but that they can't because of their job. Uh, They're, you know, maybe you're working long-term care. You're not going to completely avoid all the cases, right? Um, And, and yeah, we can be resilient to, you know, some fraction of the population that, that is not willing or able to do that and still be controlling the pandemic. I think we've been doing that. I think where the risk is really is there's a knife edge in these systems and in the models where if we open up past that threshold, we start to see exponential growth again. And you can see that in one of the slides that that really does look like it has some modeling behind it. It's number 12, and it sort of shows us really jiggly lines. And if we relax too much or we have insufficient measures, then we start to see growth, you know, starting from sort of June or July and then reaching higher case numbers uh, in the fall. And that's not really because there's a second wave in the fall. It's just because if we relax now, you know, the wave starts now and we see more cases in the fall than we see now. Right. It also, uh, they're comparing or the modeling compares with what's been done in other countries and that Canada, uh, while we can learn from other countries, it seems like what our measures, not as uh, not as strong as some others, but that they are working when you compare it to, to other places that are still seeing those, the, the lines are still going up, up, up. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have broadly seen a decline. And, you know, a few weeks ago in Quebec, it looked like cases were still rising and then that really changed. So we see kind of more leeway, you know, a stronger decline in Quebec when we when we run the fits right now than we did a few weeks ago. So some places are, are kind of improving. And I think in some countries around the world, you know, cases are still rising. And that's, you know, maybe not because, you know, an insufficient number of of laptop workers are working on their laptops at home. It could be a lot of things, including um, just higher risk and and at-risk populations or um, people without access to healthcare services or or lots of other things like that that could be going on. So it's really hard to compare to other countries because we don't know their local data. We don't know the local measures. We don't know distribution of cases. Were they all in one place or were they spread out? And these things matter when we try to understand 
uh, impacts of policy. Do you take from this then that if we keep going with what we're doing and and at the same time continue this kind of cautious reopening, we're on the right track? I think we are on the right track. And I thought overall that, that document was, was pretty great and pretty right about what we need to do. I think as, as long as we're cautious about reopening, here's what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't say, okay, right, first wave is done, we're done, let's reopen everything or reopen, you know, three quarters of the things and then wait and see about the fall. There's, there's the fall is not going to be some kind of magic button. You know, there, whatever we do now will be impacting us now and we'll see the consequences of that over the coming weeks. So I think, you know, if we kept doing exactly what we've been doing, it's great. But we don't want to do that. We, we want to start reopening. And so doing that with the right level of caution, because it's very hard to tell where we are with respect to that knife edge. All right. We will leave it there. Caroline, thank you so much uh, for your time and uh, your uh, interpretation uh, and uh, walking us through the modeling. Thank you uh, so much for doing that. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, did you see this video this past week? It was of a guy, I believe the building was on Abbott Street in Vancouver, and he was trying to cut the lock off a bike using a grinder. And a good Samaritan came along, started recording it on his phone. And the guy actually said, no, 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 this is my bike. I paid a lot of money for it. It clearly was not his bike. Generally, if it's your own bike, you don't use a grinder to cut your lock off of your bike. Police were called, and I do believe the gentleman was arrested a few blocks away. Uh, But I was thinking of that because we're going to take a few moments to talk about British Columbians and this perception of more crime in their community, especially since the pandemic started. And coming up this half hour, we're going to open up the phone lines as well. If you are in the group thinking that, yeah, you know what, it does seem like more crime has been taking place in my community. Or maybe not. Maybe you're on the other side of that. Well, let's bring in Mario Canseco. He's the president of Research Co. That's the company that did this poll. Mario, great to have you back on the program. Great to be back, Jill. Thanks for having me. So what did you ask people about crime in their community? Well, the first question was just to get a sense of how they feel about crime in their community during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we see 38% of BC residents who say the level of criminal activity has increased in their community since the pandemic began. 37% saying it stayed the same, 13% saying it's actually less crime now than before the COVID-19 pandemic. But what's interesting here is the regional breakdowns. In Metro Vancouver, the idea that criminal activity has increased uh, reaches 47%. Uh, it's uh, nowhere near this level in any other part of BC, the island at 32%, Fraser Valley at 30 So um, there seems to be a situation here where we're more likely to feel that there's more crime around us if we're in the lower mainland than if we're in other parts of the province. And did you ask people specifically what type of crime? Yes, uh, it's uh, definitely high-catching in the sense that we were expecting things to be a little bit different uh, when we were uh, coming uh, with a list uh, that, that could be used for this. Uh, the number one issue that we see happening here, and th- we do see that there's 20% of BC residents who say that since March, somebody attempted to extort them in an email or text message. So we used to get all of those messages asking us who we would vote for or if we supported a specific candidate. Now those messages are actually uh, becoming more about extortion. Somebody who says that they have images of you or that you need to deposit something or that you need to pay by Bitcoin. Uh, That is the number one thing that was reported by residents since March. 
Hmm, interesting, because I think we tend to think of, you know, smash and grab. We've seen so many storefronts put boarding on their windows. A lot of it brought down, although some of it's gone back up. So I think when we talk about crime in the pandemic, we tend to immediately think about property crime. But it's so much more than that. Well, and we do see a high number of residents who say that they have been affected by this. Uh, there's 25 percent of Metro Vancouverites who say that somebody broke into their workplace or office. which is a very high number. 24% who say that somebody broke into their car or, or stole something from their car, and 23% who say that somebody broke into their home or stole something from their home. So it's roughly one out of four residents in Metro Vancouver who say, yes, this happened to me or somebody else in my household, which are numbers that are definitely higher than what we, than what we had seen uh, asking similar questions over the past couple of years. And even looking at some of the crime maps, I know looking at them a couple of weeks ago, Vancouver police will put them out. You could see a, a, a real shift of of crime kind of moving west or at least more incidents or reports going uh, moving west into Kitsilano and that type neighborhood. It is happening definitely. When you look at, at the city of Vancouver, uh, it has definitely changed. You know, part of the reason for this is the lack of activity. A lot of these things were happening downtown. Offices were uh, with a lot of people. You had restaurants that were offering dining service. So that this type of situation was more likely to happen downtown when you had all of that, all of those uh, residents who were there. Uh, now it's moving into residential areas because most of us are working from home. You've also asked people about racially motivated attacks, and certainly we've seen Metro Vancouver police come out uh, with some cases of that, very disturbing cases of people having insults thrown at them. In some cases, it's been violence, it's been physical violence. What kind of a response did you get to that? Well, it was definitely disheartening when we were looking at the numbers. There's 11% of DC residents who say that somebody directed racial thirst or insults at them but it climbs to 24% among those of East Asian descent and also 24% among those of South Asian descent. So what we see here is a case where a lot of residents who are dissatisfied with everything that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought uh, are taking it out on those who look different than them. And it's definitely not a situation that we wanted to see. Uh, I spent some time with the numbers trying to make sense of it uh, because it seemed very high to see one out of four residents of East Asian and South Asian descent saying that I have been subjected to this since March. And did you get into the specifics or was it because in the cases that we've seen, particularly on transit, it's been people when it's been look when it's been an incredibly hateful attack, when it's been a racist attack, it's been unfortunately uh, often it's been directed at people wearing masks. Did you get into to to what the attack or what the person was saying? Well, most of the comments that we got were related to issues uh, where they didn't even know who was talking, you know, somebody who was walking on the street and then because they look different, uh, somebody said something to them that they never should have heard. Uh, all the reasons related to social distancing in a store, for instance, you know, everybody's nervous, everybody's on edge, especially if we go back to the early stages of the pandemic where we were asked to keep your distance and to not do anything that could be uh, detrimental to the cause of flattening the curve. And we see that there's a lot of residents who were minding their own business and were essentially uh, directed racial slurs at them. So it's not a good situation. One thing that is also kind of shocking is we have a situation now where we've reduced a lot of the contact that we have with people on the street because everybody's at home and you're not supposed to go out there. So those few of us who have been out there to see numbers like this, it was definitely shocking. Mm-hmm. Did you, And you asked people as well what they thought was leading to this or what was to blame. And what, what did people say? Well, this has been consistent for the past couple of years. The number two 
the, 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 the first two issues that residents uh, cite when they're thinking about crime and public safety in their community are addiction and mental health issues. 43% of residents saying that they are to blame a great deal. And 38% mentioning gags and the illegal drug trade. So it's an interesting dilemma in the sense that uh, we heard a lot about marijuana legalization, maybe bringing crime levels down, uh, ending a lot of, this, of difficulties related to the illegal drug trade. That hasn't been the case. It's still uh, you know, top of mind when it comes to the way residents feel about this. But there's one that is climbing the charts uh, at a very rapid pace. When we asked about this a year ago, poverty and inequality was at uh, 22%. Now it's at 36%. So it's definitely more a situation related to those who haven't been able to make ends meet, uh, which is different from what we saw a few years ago, which was most likely to be mental health or the drug trade. Which I find interesting, too, because even though there's that increase in people saying, I think this is probably a main factor as to, to what's led to this this current situation and, and maybe regarding some of the crime. But but I wouldn't think that you would make the connection between that and the racist attacks, because, you know, being poor shouldn't make you racist being being uh, having mental health issues doesn't make you racist. Uh, it might have other issues or might might have other stresses and put other strains on you. But uh, it's, it's odd to me that the, the, the two are, that there's that connection being made between the two. Well, I think part of the problem, especially when you look at moments when racism, unfortunately, rears its ugly head, uh, it has to do with a situation where you're no, no, where, when you're no longer able to do something that you wanted to do. And what we see here is a moment in which people are on edge. They're dissatisfied because COVID-19 maybe made them lose their jobs or lose some of their income. And they're looking at somebody who is different than them to blame them for something. And when I've asked Canadians about how they feel about people who call uh, COVID-19 the Chinese flu or the Chinese virus, a uh, large majority say, no, this should not be the case. So most of us are able to make a difference between what maybe happened at the start of this pandemic in a specific country and whether those who are here are responsible because they look differently. So unfortunately, this is happening and it's happening at a pace that we didn't expect at this stage. All right. Interesting findings, as always. Mario, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure, Joe. Anytime. We wanted to check in with some of the places which are often thought of as destination parts of the province, more so than others, and wine country, certainly one of them. Let's bring in Miles Proden, the president and CEO of the BC Wine Institute. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, how are wineries gearing up uh, to return and to reopen and to invite people back? Well, I think the, the, the quickest uh, answer to that is uh, slowly, uh, cautiously and carefully. Um, there's a lot of uh, prep that's gone into it. I think uh, people need to realize that uh, not everything was shut down when COVID uh, restrictions first came out, but along with restaurants, wineries were there were they we we were included in the provincial uh, health uh, officers order that came out and so we were actually named and physically shut down and now we're physically allowed to open so we're going to be careful on how we do it a lot of the wineries particularly the bigger ones have restaurants attached to them as well so that were they hit even harder or is it going to be more difficult for them to reopen no, I think that's, in, in fact, why, in part why we were included, uh, along with restaurants, um, also uh, lounges and tasting rooms. It was really about the tasting room. Uh, most wineries, if not all, have got some sort of area set aside for you to uh, sample their product. 
And so in the provincial health officer's eyes, I imagine that was that was seen the same as an offering in a restaurant. So that's why we were included in the actual closing down of, of the of the wineries themselves. We were still allowed to operate, which is critically important because first and foremost, we're farms. Um, we you know, we grow the grapes that we make into wine that we sell. So our, any inability to do that would have been catastrophic. So w- that aspect of it was uh, was allowed to have open. We still could sell wine. We could do it online, and we saw a huge increase in online sales, although even that we're seeing starting to slow down a little bit. But it's the actual coming to the winery, which is the most critical part of any experience for consumers. Uh, and now that we're allowed to reopen that, we're just making sure that uh, we're doing that in a thoughtful and in a safe way so that uh, customers feel comfortable uh, when they come back to visit. Uh, so how, how does it look like, or how do you see the tasting rooms reopening uh, looking like with, with those with the enhanced safety protocols? Well, yeah, well, I think we're following what the general rules are, which is safe distancing and, uh, you know, a safe uh, protocol process for employees and, and all those regular um, uh, things that protocols that need to be in place. But, the wineries are different, as you know, because of the tasting room. And so currently, uh, or until most recently, that tasting room was an area set aside within the winery. And if you've been to a winery, you're probably familiar with it. It was a, literally a bar or a counter uh, in some instances. Some were a little more sophisticated than that. But basically, it, it was a tasting area where you could come and come up to uh, the table and have a sample. Um, and that was just in one specific area. Well, with social distancing... Uh, we needed to look for ways for spreading that out. And because that was only the one area that was licensed, we went to government and they were quick to allow for those tasting experiences to be spread out to the winery. It doesn't now just have to be focused in the tasting room. They can happen uh, throughout the winery. But again, keeping in mind, they can only do that to half the capacity. So it's really what we see it is taking away from that concentrated tasting room spreading it out to uh, a really what we call curated, a real education opportunity to talk more about the wine than just to be sampling the wine. Interesting. Do you think that will be a permanent change? I I think so. I mean, you know, really what we've got uh, that's unique for British Columbia to British Columbians is the chance to come into the tasting room and where you can meet the winemaker, you can meet the... uh, the vineyard manager, you can meet the tasting room manager, you can meet, uh, you know, the head bottle washer, basically, because it's all the same person. It's that one individual and or family, many of these are family operations. So really having the time and opportunity to sit down, I know that a lot of the producers and proprietors would love the chance to actually really engage customers rather than reaching across a a tasting room bar and, and, and just pouring as many samples as they could. I think it's really about uh, quality than, than the old school quantity that we uh, had sort of been going by. Right, which which makes sense. Uh, do you, you mentioned, too, that the online sales were up. I know a lot of people were taking advantage of the free shipping that many wineries were offering. Uh, it just made it easier. You didn't have to go into a store. It would show up at your front door. Uh, do you think that will continue? Or you mentioned it's kind of falling off a, a bit. But do you think that people have kind of discovered that and the ease of doing that as well? I, well, we do. We hope so. I mean, again, the ex- nothing beats a winery experience of going to a winery. But given the current conditions and maybe people's reluctance. And as you described or talked about earlier, like just how easy is it going to be to, to, to travel around the province? Uh, uh, you can still enjoy BC wine by by ordering direct. We saw a, a, a good rush on that initially, but we saw that sort of slow down. I think people were 
keen to uh, stock their wine cellars uh, initially, uh, but now that uh, things have sort of progressed and gone on longer, we're seeing, starting to see that sort of slowly, slowly drop off. But that's okay. The direct sales is an important aspect of it. If you can't visit the winery, you, many people have got their favorite winery. And so we think that ability to continue to service that is, that is important. Free shipping, that's important. But again, it's, it's a challenge because that, that free shipping comes at a cost to the winery. And uh, believe it or not, consumers can appreciate it. There's not a lot of money made in wine. Wine may arguably cost a lot of money, but when it comes to the profit margins, uh, you know, just trying to produce wine in this province, um, every little bit helps. So free shipping uh, is, is an important way of enticing customers. But again, that comes directly to the bottom line of the winery. So I think people are going to Rethink that a little bit. Uh, can't speak for them because clearly it was it was important to, to consumers to take advantage of, of of the ability to order direct. So, how do you see things playing out this summer? If if all goes, if the 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 curve keeps being flattened or kept down, and our numbers are looking good, and the province is reopened, and we're encouraged to travel, how do you th- see things playing out as far as wineries welcoming crowds? Well, the, what we've been talking to a lot of wineries about and coming up with uh, some protocols and best practices, uh, and we've developed those for the wineries, and, and many of them are now putting those into place. But one of the key tenants or key, key best practices there for us is reservations. So I think uh, consumers and customers should think uh, ahead a bit as opposed to coming to wine country and dropping in on one or two or three wineries that they know and want to visit. It's going to take a little bit of pre pre-planning and the reward for that pre-planning will be that when they're expecting you knowing you're coming it's going to be a a sort of a more engaging activity and a more thoughtful education process so whereas you're going to have to maybe think a little bit about where you want to be and when the payoff is going to be they're going to wait they'll be there waiting for you they'll be having a specific uh, experience set aside for you so again, it gets down to what we're calling the uh, quantity quality issue, and I think that's the benefit for everybody is that uh, really spending some good time, not just tasting the wine, but understanding the wines. All right. It sounds like wineries have come through this okay. I mean, obviously they've been hurt and, and things have changed, uh, but it sounds like they've been creative and are looking forward to, to the other side of this. Do you know, were any wineries shut down or were there any that you know of that didn't uh, make it through? Yeah, no, I, you know, again, the, the increase in, 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 in sales is, is, is a huge plus for us, right? But I mean, not everyone, that wasn't shared necessarily equally. There are many wineries they didn't have the capacity for online ordering and still don't to this day. They're, they are built to rely on, on winery visits. We need to think again about how this industry is built in terms of farming. And so if you think of yourself as a winery and what you do is grow grapes and produce wine, well, when you sit out there and look at your enterprise, you see the 2018 vintage in bottles. Uh, you need to sell that as quickly as you can because you've got the 2019 vintage. That's last year's vintage that's in the in the tanks. And that needs to be put into bottles so that it can be sold. And then behind all of that is the 2020 vintage, which is this year's vintage that's growing right currently as we speak. So it's not like you can turn the switch off and wait for all your inventory to uh, to uh, be sold through. It's a continual process, and it all starts in the in the vineyard. And Mother Nature, well, Mother Nature can, but hopefully Mother Nature will not uh, impact the crop. But uh, it's coming one way or the other. So. It's a balancing act, and just because sales have been good the last couple months online um, doesn't mean uh, we're out of the woods. So uh, 
I'd encourage anyone listening who's a supporter of BC Wine to continue either buying online or going to the many uh, many retail places around the province to uh, to support BC Wine because uh, the family growers really need that support. All right, Miles, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure.